0: Hello, and welcome to From Her View. My name is Liz Warner, and here each week I'll be speaking to extraordinary women from around the world. You'll hear all about their personal story, how and why they said yes to a groundbreaking idea in their life. We'll also dive deep into a behind-the-scenes look at what it's actually like to live in fascinating, but perhaps misunderstood places like Afghanistan, Cuba, Somalia, Iran, and Venezuela. I am inviting you to gain a deeper understanding of the far-reaching corners of the world from a different perspective, hers. Have you ever had the impulse to drop everything and start off on a risky, ambitious adventure? Today I'm introducing you to a woman who felt this calling at a young age and keeps saying yes to it. The Dongi Kukarni is a 22-year-old adventure traveler who in 2018 became the youngest woman to circumnavigate the world on a bicycle, a journey she completed mostly solo and unsupported. If that wasn't courageous enough, she recently started her own business called The Adventure Shed, through which she aims to make adventure more accessible by helping others plan some pretty insane adventure expeditions. Having spent her childhood in India, the crafty adult life in the UK, the donkey's definition of home is a little more complex than most. This episode is a thrill ride through her craziest adventures, everything from moments of the heartwarming kindness from total strangers to the trauma of being mugged at knife point while biking through Spain, as well as a thoughtful layer discussion on mental health, passport privilege, and the difficulty of being a woman of color in adventuring. Get ready for a deep dive into the life of a woman who embraces discomfort on a daily basis and get a taste of the mindset that's enabled her to overcome the craziest challenges and keep moving forward. I hope you enjoy. So Vidangi, thank you so much for coming on to From Her View. I'm really excited to have you as my guest today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's always great talking to people.
0: Yeah. So tell me a bit about your background. You grew up most of your life in India. What was your childhood like?
1: Um, Well, I was born in a place called Dumbivli, which is um, in District Tane, close to Mumbai. Let's go with that. Easy to understand. It's close to Mumbai. uh, So that's where I was born. And my childhood was, and and, and we kind of actually moved from there to uh, the city of Pune, and we were actually based in the outskirts, close to the mountains, and really beautiful place. And yeah, my childhood was mostly my dad working abroad, so he was one month at work one month with us and yeah my parents are very much into traveling so they kind of raised me with that so we used to every time my dad used to be back for a month um we used to be off just you know taking holiday from school and just off kind of going to places in India that I would read and textbooks and stuff and my mom is like very keen on driving uh and she was also very keen on riding a motorcycle so when my dad wasn't there we used to her and i used to just travel quite a bit but then when my dad was there obviously we couldn't fit him on a motorcycle so it used to be like a car and it wasn't even like a great car it was like this rickety (gasps) like tiny suzuki like uh, 800 not like, you know, a really tiny car. And three of us used to just travel like across the country to many places in that. So that was like a lot of my childhood. But the memories I have are of that. Um, and I went to a kind of a religious, I want to say, very like traditional and very like, you know, kind of abiding with strong cultural boundaries as far as women are concerned kind of yeah. thing so yeah I was required to wear like um a thing on my head like a, spot, uh, a bindi and like wear a bangle as a sign of femininity and you know stuff like that and I was like that was my school I wasn't allowed to cut my hair and wow. definitely not allowed to dye it <laughs> and uh, yeah so that was the first what 14 years years of my no, 15 years of my life. were like um kind of in that school but still like doing really kind of all the traveling stuff with my parents. I used to do a lot of mountaineering, long distance hiking and stuff. Um yeah. and yeah I used to play football and I did that professionally actually. I was in a oh team called <laughs> Yeah, I was a goalkeeper. I was yeah. I, I was tiny but I was still a goalkeeper for whatever reason. Okay. I, I think it was mostly because I was um I like to like dive for the ball or yeah. like, you know, go one to one with people and just, you know, yeah, I think that was why I wasn't, I wasn't scared of breaking things. I've broken my nose a fair few times, my okay. fingers a fair few times. So yeah, a lot of it was like, so my parents aren't very, um, they are very open-minded and yeah. Um, they aren't the typical Indian parents. Like, if my extended when my extended family found out about the stuff, they, like, found out, like, what, how I make a living now. They, they're always, like, a bit, what? Like, your parents actually allowed you to do that? That's so responsible. But actually, yeah. it's not. Like, they're just really open-minded, and they're very, like... Um, my dad never told me that because I was a yeah, there are certain things I shouldn't be doing. He didn't mind when I came back with like scrapes on my knees and shit. And he was really like, yeah, really cool about that stuff. And um, when at the age of 17, when I had done this short bike ride in the Himalayas and I was like, oh, I want to do the longer version of it, the bit where there's actually a road connecting the whole kind of Indian Himalayas like the Ladakh region the the kind of uh, Kashmir region kind of you know the whole kind of connection and I wanted to do that and my at first we were really trying to do it with like um organized group and then we found out that because I was under 18 I wouldn't be allowed to be a part of that so oh. <laughs> so I just said to my dad I was like well, if I can't do it with the organized group, why don't I just do it by myself? And um, yeah, my mum wasn't very keen on that to start with. But then my dad was like, oh, actually, that's not a bad idea. But how about me and my mum haven't been on like a holiday holiday for a while. So how about we are in a car, we are in, you know, 20, 30, 40 kilometre radius, whatever you want. and. We wouldn't bother you. You just do your writing, do what you want, and we'll just be alright just in case. Like we don't you don't know you don't even have to see us. Um I was kind of like, hmm, you know what? Why not? Like kind of at that point I had realized that I'm in a very, very, very fortunate position, (laughs) very privileged position that my parents are actually letting me do these things and they are being so cool about it. So yeah, yeah, took that opportunity and did a bike ride across Himalayas. Well, not the whole thing. There was a point where my dad wasn't really ill. He he suffers because he worked at the sea, which meant that like he um he has a lot of breathing issues uh, from working in the like, oil and gas industry. So mm. um, he had an asthma attack combined mm. with um, like altitude sickness. And okay. uh, basically, um, for like a section of the route, I had to jump in the car so that we could get him to a safe place. Um, and at the time, yeah. I was not happy at the time oh, okay. and because that was like after at the bit where you have to do like this 21 hip and bends okay. and then you have to go like five more kilometers until the summit of the pass and i've done the 21 hairpin mm-hmm. bends and then i was struggling with altitude as well so i was like going really slow and um, yeah. and basically if you're struggling in yes. in those regions then and the driver was very like kind of oh no you're struggling so there's no way you can do it there's no such you're either tired, yeah, or you're not. If that yeah. makes sense. And if yeah. you're tired, they're gonna just put you in the car and take you, kind of thing. Yeah. Yes. So it yes. was it's very annoying because I'm the kind of person who wouldn't want to do that. But he yes. kind of used the fact that my dad has this um asthma attack as a as an excuse to just hurry the hell up and, yes. you know, kind of put my bike on the the car and took me for like and it wasn't that much it was like a small chunk of the ride but I was so (laughs) unhappy about that I was like uh,
0: going and, but I'm sure at that point you must have been like a little delirious like in these altitudes almost like what's going on but just having like such a narrow focus that you had yeah
1: yeah but that makes it even harder to accept the fact that I mean at the time I found it so hard to um, like kind of fathom that, that I'm being selfish yeah. <laughs> like that, that you know if my dad's health is in kind of um, if, if my dad's struggling then I should probably be focusing more on that and right. you know you don't get many of that like yeah you don't get, get another father you know right. so yeah. you know that was like a really strange situation where I came to a realization after like a good night's sleep that yeah. Oh shit, yeah. I'm being really yeah. selfish. It's like, I don't need to be such a dick. <laughs> I can do this again. I can come back and do this anytime. Yeah. And yeah, okay. after that, yeah. I got back on the bike and completed the journey, but still, like, that was this little kind of blip that happened yeah. on that journey. But yeah, I was 17 at the time. So it's, and quite understandably, I was still a teenager, still yeah. not very matured with my thinking I suppose but yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah I think a few months after that I um, had my 18th birthday and five days after that I moved to the UK
0: <laughs> wow. and you know after that journey across the Himalayas did that give you the confidence to want to do something perhaps even crazier well it
1: gave me confidence to think bigger if that makes sense so yeah I met some incredible people when I was there who made me um realize that there are bigger things than just just you know what was there around me if that makes sense (laughs) so they gave me a whole new perspective towards oh like you know if you like riding your bike here's like a million more things you can do rather than just a bike ride across India or a bike ride across a highway that goes across Malaysia or things like that. And they gave me like an even wider perspective towards what else I could be doing. And as it turned out around the same time, Actually, no, it wasn't around the same time. When I was 15, a guy called Tom Davis, who was 19 at the time, did a bike ride around the world. And I remember saying to my dad then that, oh, imagine when I'm 19 if I do something that's half as cool as that. And um, we left it at that. We didn't think any more of it. But then, yeah, when I moved here, and when after the Himalayan ride, I was like, oh, like, I want to do something like that. That's yeah. really, really big. At some point in my life, it was never like, I didn't, I didn't have to rush it. And yeah. it was all like, at the time, it was all like, when I grew up, yeah. Yeah. never, right. it was never, oh, in two years, this is what I want to do.
0: So then what made you, I mean, we'll skip to to a couple of years later, but what was the point where you then decided this was the right time to do this, perhaps? the thing is it wasn't the right time (laughs) Um, right right? (laughs)
1: but like better than doing it in 2020 if we have to just put life in perspective now (laughs) um um basically within a few months of moving to the UK I hadn't managed to make many friends and I was lonely as hell (laughs) and I was like it's kind of sad that the only people I can tell about my life is my parents on a phone call when they are like in the, on the other side of the world. So I was like, I want to explore this country and I want to travel slow, but I'm going to start with this 400 kilometer ride. So I was training for uh, an event called London, Edinburgh London, um, which is like a 1200, 1400 kilometer ride that you're meant to do in like five days. So, really cool. But I, as a training for that, uh, I wanted to do a 400 kilometer ride. Um, As it turned out, a little bit like 100 or 120 kilometers in, I had a malfunction on my bike and I was just fixing it. And I got talking to this really amazing lady in this uh, village called Bentley in Hampshire. And um, she invited me Eventually, yeah, I just ended up uh, staying at hers. And when her husband asked me where I was going, I was very confused. So he yeah. put a map in front of me and I just pointed out there, John O'Groats, other end of the country. And I didn't think much of it. But then he asked me about my route and I just looked at the major cities along the way. And I was at my point in, in, in at that point, I was, I, I didn't even know how to say Reading. I would look at the spelling and go, oh. Reading <laughs> is that what it is like? You know. Um, so yeah, basically ended up traveling across the country, but I didn't have enough money. I didn't have any sleeping gear, like no camping gear whatsoever, no sleeping bag, no and nothing. And I was just knocking on random people's doors and telling them that, "Hey, like I'm doing something like this." And in all honesty, I don't know what I'm doing, and I was just being like incredibly honest with them. Um, Um, as it turned out, people actually like when others are honest with you. And, yeah, like I got invited into random people's homes and they were very nice to me. (laughs) And um, when I got to John O'Groats, and and whilst I was on this journey, I was sleeping in like random bus shelters or like gas station toilets, if not other people's homes. And then I was reading a book called This Road I Ride by Julianne Buring she was the first woman to set the record to be the fastest woman to ride around the world and yeah. like to circumnavigate the globe on bike you Kind know? of yeah that's what the record is called yeah to circumnavigate the globe on bike and I was like when I read that book I felt like really I was thinking I would read it not think much of it and then I would ride and be like could I do this Yeah. Do I have it in me? Like, can I find comfort and discomfort? And, you know, things like that. And it at the time, obviously, any research or the fact that I would need, like, a million visas to do this or however much money it took, like, none of that crossed my mind. It was all about, am I physically and mentally capable of being on my bike for months on end by myself? riding yeah. all day long like can i do this and then got to john groves of uh, uh, like against all odds and just sitting there and thinking well i got here yeah and um, i am like an 18 year old who knows nothing about this country yeah and i still managed to get here with just about like not n- no more money than food you know wow. so surely i can do that you know and that was across the whole uk mm. So that was a 400-kilometer ride, turned into a 1,600-kilometer ride.
0: (laughs) Insane. Like, I can't even imagine that. Um, And, you know, you mentioned, too, that you were kind of sleeping in all different places, strangers' homes, who I'm sure were very kind strangers in the end. I'm still in touch with them, like all of them. Yeah, yeah, that they, you know, just really strong connections were made. along the way, but did you at any point, you know, fear for yourself, like just being a solo female traveler, kind of also at some points being in a vulnerable position just out of, you know, being physically and mentally exhausted too? From um, this
1: journey? Yeah. Yeah. There were quite a few points, but the thing is, obviously after that journey, I also did the round-the-world thing, so there were worse things that happened there than yeah. the other ones. So now when I think about this one, I'm like, wow, actually nothing that bad happened. But it was it was weird because um, when I entered, like, Scotland and I was riding, some of the bits, I took, like, some really – strange country roads that I wouldn't otherwise have. Otherwise I was speaking, uh, sticking to main road. But yeah. when I was in like the countryside, that was like my one of my first experiences being completely alone. Like, you know, yeah. even in, in the Himalayas, I knew, even though I was by myself, I knew 20, 30 kilometers and I knew like my parents would be somewhere. Yeah. Or like I knew the military vehicles were passing, but I found myself in really strange places now. Like I was like, oh wait, like I haven't passed a car for ages. And then I didn't know much about the country. So I didn't know that, you know, there's an emergency number. If you get stuck, you can call like, you know, nothing like that. I didn't know much about it. It was just like, oh, if I get in trouble, someone will just find me. Like, you know, I wasn't prepared at all. So it was kind of scary. Um, But I really went with my intuition in most of um, those situations. I was kind of like, right, I'm scared. What am I scared of? And like kind of thinking in the way of, okay, if there's a risk, like what do I rate that? And kind of doing a mental risk assessment, how do I combat it? And, um, you know, like is is, is there a way to get over that particular fear? And is there something I can do to kind of make it better for myself? And then eventually, if I was still scared, um, I would just go for it. But like, you know, it's easy to recognize the strong gut feeling of don't do this and the irrational fear. Yeah. It's easy to recognize the, the, the one from the other. And then if it's irrational, it's easy to just go yeah no this is irrational I'm just gonna I gotta I gotta go past that barrier and I yeah. think at that point I had found it easy to kind of recognize that which is to say I, I found I wasn't scared of being alone anymore
0: yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: so I was like and I had some like mental um kind of I had some mantras or I had
0: some playlists yes. or you so, know I'm so excited <laughs> so just like at these moments where mentally, yeah, your attention shifts, you kind of obsess over maybe one particular thought. And yeah, these mantras really do help you in so many ways. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So um, let's fast forward a bit when in 2016, you decided to say yes to embark on this crazy journey around the world to do what most would consider truly impossible, um, to circumvent the entire world across 14 different countries by bicycle. So at this point, how many did did you give yourself like a certain amount of time to plan it all? Or, I mean, what was that process like just getting everything, even choosing the different countries that you would be traveling through? What was that whole process like?
1: So it was early 2017 when I was like, right, I'm doing like next year, probably I'll be ready for this. So, yeah. And I, in early 2017, I planned to do it in summer of 2018. Um, well, when I say early, I actually mean mid because I hadn't declared it and said it out loud until november 2017 probably (laughs) so no october october 2017 there we go There was an event
0: yeah so
1: it was like a long time but i had said it to my friends and stuff um in like june july of 2017 and i was like right like this is what i'm doing these are the brands i'm speaking with and uh i said it to my university staff um, I was doing a degree in sports management and I was going to be on my placement here in 2018. Um, and a lot of things didn't work out, but I said like, if it doesn't happen to be a placement, I'll just take an ear out of uni, you know, like, yeah, it's not a big deal. I just want to do it in 2018. So I'll do it in 2018. So, um, eventually I managed to uh, convince people from university to help me out with the training, the sports psychology side of it, and things like that. And that worked really well, because I was able to train in the university gym literally anytime I wanted. Um, I was able to get some sort of like all of the physical fitness tests that are there, I was able to do that with the with the facilities that were available in university. Um, and yeah, I had training plans and stuff. And eventually I realized that I'm not following much of the training plans and I'm just riding my bike as I feel like riding my bike, which was probably not the best, but I was still like, I was using the training plan as a guideline. And then I was kind of going along with, a little bit around it to do what I wanted to do if if that makes sense so that was more of like the training side of things the logistical side there was a lot to it because I didn't have any money (laughs) uh still then not not much has changed since then but um I was so new to understanding what brands want and how to work with them so I had to learn from scratch how to write a sponsorship proposal or what do brands actually need from you and what what do you need from them like you know how can you make it relevant to them um and yeah like it was it was quite hard eventually eventually it worked out and many sponsors came in last minute literally like i was meant to leave in june which i didn't but in june i got most of my sponsors and then i left in july eventually of 2018 um But it was quite strange. Like coming up with the route, I spoke with people who had done it before. So I spoke with Mark Beaumont. He helped me quite a bit with like route and also with how to kind of tailor the sponsorship proposal to the brand. Like he helped me quite a bit with understanding that. Um, But he he had just done his round the world in 80 days. So um, he told me what was the fastest route. And I was like, Well, I don't think my visa is going to last for that long. So I'm going to have to, as in, you know, for the European countries, I had to think about how long the Schengen visa would last me, or if all the countries are under the Schengen region. Yes. And, you know, I had to think of all
0: those things. And um, so complicated. It adds a whole layer of like complexity with figuring out the logistical side.
1: It does. And then I was kind of also like, okay, where do I need just an e-visa? So Australia and New Zealand, I don't need a stamped visa on my passport. I can get away with an electronic visa. So I made sure that I was, I think, yeah, I think that's why I decided to start from Australia. So I started and finished in Perth in Australia. um, And I needed a visa for that, for New Zealand then for canada i needed a visa for america but again the interview date was like was after i was meant to be already out of america and i was like that's just pointless why did you even bother me giving a date like you know um then canada again i needed a visa um then schengen territory the whole of it i needed a visa um russia again Visa. Um, India didn't need one, but then by the time I was done with my distance, I needed another visa for Australia. So there was a lot of that. But um, like when I came back and I was talking about the visa situation, I got so many questions like, oh, why don't you just plan it all in advance? But it's not as simple as that because you have to give three months, like 90 days before you're in a certain country, like you have that long. But yeah those 90 days I would be on the road. So, like, right. you know, I can't apply for that before right. I leave because right. it will have already expired by the time I've entered. So there's so much to think about. Um, and when you're on the road, a lot can go wrong. You don't know when you're going to leave that country when you've yeah. entered. So it's kind yeah. of hard. And quite a few, all of these visas, actually, not quite a few, all of these visas needed an ongoing ticket. Yeah. So there was always a deadline to get somewhere in time. Um, So yeah pretty complicated that but I made sure that I was actually instead of doing the fastest route across Europe I chose to go um, Portugal, Spain, France, Belgium, Germany, Denmark, Sweden, Finland kind of like up north um, so that I wouldn't kind of be going like Poland, Latvia and stuff. And there wasn't any issue with that. I just needed to add some distance. So I did that because I wasn't going to be able to do America, uh, like start from Alaska and do the quite a long distance from there to Calgary. So I was yeah. like, cool, if I can't do that, I'll do it like the other way from here. You know, and uh, one of the most difficult things was I was in Canada. I had done my halfway Around the world, and I needed to get into Portugal, but because I was in Canada on a tourist visa, I wouldn't be a. I wasn't allowed to apply for any other visas, Gosh. not no Schengen visa. So I was just going from embassy to embassy, really tired because I'd done like multiple really long days on bikes, and yeah, like they wouldn't give me the right visa, and eventually Danish embassy. Um, agreed to give me an Icelandic visa if I wanted. And I was okay. like, you know what, at this point, yeah, go on. Because okay. you have to get the visa of the country that your point of entry is. So, That's- yeah, it was quite complicated. Eventually got the visa. And then it's pretty much from there that my whole record attempt went downhill from. <laughs> my
0: gosh. But when you say, you know, that you had just done a really long distance ride how many kilometers are we talking about like how did it really vary day by day how long you spent on the bike or do you take any rest days i hope as well during it
1: no 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 no. because the whole period counts including transit period it went around the world record attempt literally from when you start to when you finish every second counts so the way it worked was um yeah, there were no rest days. All of the days that I needed to sort out my visas or injuries or whatever, they counted. So none of that was, like, rest days weren't a thing. Yeah. But I was aiming to do 200 miles um, on bike for 16 to 18 hours every day. And then I would find a camping camping spot. But, like, it, it wasn't, like, I didn't have time to do the tent and all that malarkey. So it was literally just... Um, yeah uh baby bag sleeping sleeping bag you know that sort of stuff wow
0: amazing and um I'm sure you get this question a lot but were there any particular really high moments and low moments during the whole journey you know maybe a moment where you felt you know completely reassured like this was your calling in life and alternatively maybe an example of a moment where you potentially even wanted to give up high moments
1: oh I remember this um oh you know what actually yeah, that one basically I was in the Pyrenees and I was I'll get to the low moment that gave rise to the concussion in a bit but I was still quite concussed but I was recovering from it so I was at a point where I was not fine but still fine fine enough to <laughs> kind of thing um and I was in the Pyrenees and it was very very foggy um and I rode up this mountain I have no idea which one (laughs) this pass and I remember climbing up it and I was in such a happy place and I didn't even have my music on I was just like It was just so foggy. I love it when it's foggy, and that's always been a thing. Like I love it when it's foggy and slightly damp, kind of thing. So I was just riding, and it was very like atmospheric, and um, that was a a very high moment. And after a long time, I was actually able to do the downhill as well because with concussion, like balance is really off. So I I didn't do downhills before that. Between like almost almost the whole of Spain. Anytime there was like a slope I would just get off my bike and have to walk because I was concussed but um, at that point in the Pyrenees I was fine enough to do the downhills and um, it was incredible because yeah after a long time I earned and earned to climb earned that downhill from doing a climb and then the whole day was a lot of climbing and a lot of downhills and I tasted because it was like really foggy and beautiful and wow. that was when I felt at the top of the world I felt like this was my thing and this is incredible yeah. um but yeah and low points well I got mugged at knife points in Spain so no. <laughs> my god. well I'm laughing now it wasn't at the time um oh, god
0: but again like to do that to someone where like they see when you're bike, they see that you're probably just like, you're obviously, you know, doing this on your own. You have all your gear with you. That's pretty terrible to put someone in that position as well. Like again, when you're in such a vulnerable state and just trying to like get to point B and, and end your day. Um, but did you, how did you come out of that situation too? Were you a bit, you know, startled? Like, did you have to take like a couple of hours to just, you know, calm your nerves, I imagine. Oh, with,
1: with, with just tons of difficulty and luck, I would say. There was a lot of luck involved because I was held at knife point with a knife right here. And at, I don't have it anymore, but basically there was like, right kind of here somewhere, there was actually like a point where it was bleeding. Um, and someone, like I was pushed off my bike, I was riding my bike, was pushed yeah. off of it. Um and there were a couple of guys and I got a bit beaten up um and my nose was bleeding, mouth bleeding, a lot of stuff was bruised and bleeding. It was not it was not pretty. Um and then I was held at knife point and this other guy was taking stuff off my bike. Um and I was just I was a bit disoriented, obviously, not a bit a lot. But I was like, because I was so scared, I had to find a point of focus.
0: Yeah, so yeah. the
1: point of focus was the number plate okay. because that's all I could really properly see. And yeah. I was also trying to recognise, um, I was trying to, I was looking at the faces of these people and I was like, do they resemble resemble anyone? Like if I had to describe how this person looked, how would I describe them? And I was like comparing them to Bollywood actors. Oh and God. I was like, Hmm. he has a nose like this bother of that. you know, kind of that. But anyway,
0: um, it was a bit stupid, but anyway. No, you have to do that in those situations. Like, it's obviously really important.
1: Yeah, but it was crazy. I got thrown down the side of the road and I went down head first. Oh, my God. And uh, the reason I didn't have my helmet on at that point was that the minute I was off the ground, and I saw that someone had actually pushed me, I got really angry and I threw my helmet at them. That's one of the lightest helmet that the company has ever made that gave me that helmet. So it was pretty futile, you know. <laughs> um, so I didn't have my helmet on at the point where I had gone like head first down this Gosh. edge. And um, yeah, I came back up, um, and then they threw my bike on me. So when I came back up, I was like, okay, what do I have on me? And I didn't remember which direction I was traveling in. So it was all like really, really odd. I didn't know if I was traveling like which direction or or where I I was, you know. I didn't know I was in Spain at that point. I I couldn't care less. (laughs) So I kept walking in the general direction that my stuff was sprawled across the road in put it oh back God. as much as I could. Um yeah. some of it was ripped and I could just kind of stitch it back up later. I, I did that later on. But anyway, okay. ended up at a gas station and this guy was like he looked at me and he just knew something was wrong. Oh and then God. we tried to have a conversation in broken English.
0: Yeah. And
1: we didn't understand each other. It was very complicated. Yes. <laughs> um and he was like google translate and I was like oh my phone and my phone was like somewhere in my pocket it was still there okay. and he was like passcode passcode and I was like I don't remember that passcode <laughs> so he just tried zero 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 and that was my passcode
0: no, no. <laughs> okay, well, like universe being like this is this is happening for a reason like this man is coming to that's <laughs> wild, That's
1: pretty wild. <laughs> and we got the passcode we got google translate going i told them what was happening um he took me for a coffee uh, behind there uh, yeah. which i threw up right after but still it was a nice gesture and the family there um i was from my from the broken english of the guy and from whatever i was talking about the family understood they, were, they spoke both English and Spanish they understood what was wrong. They took me to the hospital because they were like yeah. you're not riding a bike like this is this is bad kind of thing yeah. Um, and um, yeah basically went to um, went to the hospital found out I had concussion um, and they were like, oh we have to admit you something on those lines and I was like yeah no that's not happening there's no way I'm staying in the hospital in in like some Spanish village like yeah no that's just not happening um the family booked me they, they actually offered for me to stay at theirs and I was like probably probably not because they had like two kids and um and a dog and they had a lot to handle and the place was really small and I didn't want to be a hassle instead they booked me into this motel And um, I went in there and, yeah, like, went in there and it was literally like a prison. There was not even a window, like four rooms, no window. And my bike was there and whatever was left of the stuff was there. And I was just like, hmm, like, do I actually want to be here for like four days or whatever I don't want to be recovering here so I in like the next day within 40 or so hours of that incident I left from there and I got back on my bike and I tried riding I couldn't do a lot obviously I got tired really quick I I wasn't able to keep food down it was horrible I was aching everywhere there was like of bruises bruised in places. It was just really horrible. Um, but, like, I was out. I was in open, you know. It was yeah. much better than being in a closed room with no windows. <laughs> and I was doing less distance. And there was a point where I did, like, it took me eight hours to do 100 kilometres. Wow. It would take me, usually, on a good day, it would take me four hours. On a bad day, it would take me five and a half No, no more than that. Eight hours to 200 kilometers. People run faster than that. So it was like a very um, bad situation to um, be in. But like, I was still riding, going a little distance every day, not a lot, but still managing. And it was until a point, it was not until probably Belgium that I realized that I could do more than what I was at that point and yeah once I was um what was I oh I, I think yeah I was in Belgium actually met with my friend's sister yeah. um and she gave me a Belgian beer some chocolates and we're just chatting and i was kind of like and, and another friend of mine that i used to chat with and rant to about how horrible it is to ride with concussion and stuff um and and like how angry i was at the fact that i'm no longer going to be able to go for the record to be the fastest woman around the world and everything i was so angry about everything i would yeah. rant to him and as it turned out he's he's so uh, he's finished and he was gonna be in Helsinki for a, at a certain date until a certain date, and I was like, hmm, like there's a chance I can see a familiar face yeah. after a long, long, long time. And yeah. he is one of my best friends. And yeah, he said to me like, if there's anyone that I know who can get here in time, then it's you. If I, not, if, if there's anyone that I know who can do this, then it's you. Like. And he would, he would call me, he would um, like track my location and he would kind of be very like, you know, he would send me like new songs or he, he would like, you know, get other friends to call me as well so that I would like not
0: be lonely kind of thing. And so to have that like level of support, just knowing that you have people like thousands of miles away, hundreds of miles away, like cheering you on, like supporting you in these like, yeah but meaningful ways.
1: Yeah. yeah. And and um, his mom used to kind of um, keep a, keep up to date with my dad because my dad was like someone I would speak with quite often through the whole thing. So I didn't I hadn't I told this friend of mine about the whole mugging incident before I told my dad because as as a father you don't want to know that your your kid just almost died and so yeah that was a bit um interesting but yeah um eventually I mustered the courage to go beyond 300 kilometers once again I had decided I was like I don't care if this takes over 24 hours I'm doing this and once i had done it once after concussion I found it in me to do it over and over like you know day after day again um and yeah that then like that was like kind of a low to high point, low point was the whole getting through the few, first few weeks where I'm not able to do the mileage. I yeah. feel, feel like I've just lost everything that I've ever worked towards. I uh, yeah. feel like, well, I feel like debt because concussion does that to you. I felt very emotionally unstable. It was just not not a good place to be. So it went from like feeling, being in a really dark place to seeing my friend which was such a high point
0: (laughs) yeah of Um, course of course wow and did you have any favorite countries along the way too just places that you passed through I'm sure all of the different places you were you were bicycling through or cycling through um the memories you have of them now are attached to these specific experiences. Like I'm sure Spain is like, as much as it was a beautiful country, like you might not have obviously the best memories there, but were there other countries that really hold a special place in your heart just based on, I don't know, the surrounding landscapes or the people you met, of course, et cetera.
1: Um, Yeah. Canada definitely is up there. Um, Yeah. So yeah, um, my journey in Canada started with a lung infection because they were having some really horrible wildfires. But um, I also met some of the most amazing people when riding across Canada. Basically, I was in this uh, really tiny village, and I found that I looked at the sky and I was like, shit, It's gonna be a thunderstorm," and. You know, like the clouds and the color of the clouds and the color of the sky I can tell a lot about the weather. So I was just like my inner weather woman was at work, and I was like, yeah, yeah. no, this is not good. Um, and yeah, once again, knocked at a random door, and it was a family, and they were incredible. And they asked again, like they asked still in touch as well yeah. with me. And yeah. yeah, like I think some of the people I met in Canada were just amazing like i went off track uh at one point and i was like it felt like i was in the middle of nowhere and i was passing like ghost ghost stands and stuff and i was like i don't know where to get any more water or food from. this is odd and someone who had heard from a friend of friend or someone who just overheard someone else speaking about me having gone off path um drove like hundreds of miles. Um, like hundreds of miles off kind of where I had gone to just give me extra food and water and tell me whether, where I could go back on like a route that there's civilization on, which is quite interesting. Um, So yeah, Canada is definitely like up there as far as um, yeah, beautiful places and beautiful people go. But yeah again like Finland was another one and actually Russia was a really good one because I did Russia in winter and I only did half of Russia in winter well um, because then I had to fly to India my visa didn't allow me to stay there for longer uh, to ride across Um, and it was quite interesting because in there were so many people who went out of their way to help me with things and like there was this um i was i, I was in this ditch bivvying um in in a layby and this this guy just kind of had done a bit of a skid accidentally on me with mm-hmm. like a lot of snow kind of plopping off on me kind of thing and then he he was like oh no like someone's sleeping there he kind of realized that I was there and uh, obviously he was speaking Russian I was speaking English I wouldn't like we didn't understand each other at all my phone had no signal and he felt really bad for me so he was like he offered to dry everything of mine from my gloves to everything like heat it up in his heater of his car and he made arrangements for me to like sleep in there for like a couple of hours and then until I slept in there like he was out okay so he was like out in the cold whilst I was just sleeping in this in this vehicle and cool. yeah like you know a situation like that can turn dodgy at any moment but the sky was so nice he even gave me shots of vodka which I didn't say no to
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love that I love that that's I mean and it's you know these kind of experiences of just like incredible connections with strangers, who obviously showed you the most the warmest hospitality that yeah, yeah left the the biggest imprint um, the warmest imprint on your memories too. And I was curious too, um, how was your experience? as a woman of color doing this whole journey and just in endurance sports in general. And did you ever experience any microaggressions? Um, and I guess, how have you been able to manage uh, to maintain your own self confidence despite maybe certain incidents that happened?
1: You know, I, w- one of the things that really stand out for me is that I was in an Indian embassy actually in London and the guy there told me that this whole adventure jazz is for white people. Why do you even bother? Because I was, I'd gone there to get a letter from the Indian embassy requesting them to say something on the lines of, okay, this is Vidangi, here's what she's doing. It's a like Guinness World Record attempt. So, um, and it, like for other embassies, it was kind of like, please oblige to her requests and kind of thing. And I'd got, at this point, I had letters from the Prime Minister of India and like the External Affairs Ministry of India and stuff like that. so there was no there was no kind of reason for the guy at the Indian Embassy in London to be so horrible about it. but instead he chose to tell me how um this whole adventure thing is for like people, it's not for me and I shouldn't bother and this and that. And he was he was genuinely just like not not very um yeah, not very helpful with the way he was being and yeah, didn't didn't like it one bit. So that was um kind of a bad situation. Um but like otherwise in embassies obviously um I don't know I felt like I've always felt like every time there was something to do with visas, I've always um, been treated like a hassle, and it's very bloody annoying, but at the same time, I, I can, I don't know, yeah, it just bothers me. That's kind of something that makes me feel really unwelcome, but then... When I'm actually, when I've got the visa and I'm in a certain country, everyone's so welcoming and so nice to me that I forget very easily how horrible it was to actually get in there.
0: 100%. And it's like, I mean, I was curious also how you responded to that one person who made those terrible comments at the the embassy in London. Do you say anything back to him? Or do you feel like at that point, Um, it's like, why even pick, you know, a fight? or not even a fight but just you know these are the people you just need to get through this process get your visa and like leave the premises um how did you respond to him
1: well I didn't I just walked out of there and I was like at the door of the whole place and I was just like crying and I just called my dad and I was like this guy said this to me I didn't know what to do I then, not know like if like yeah, I was just like, I don't know if this was for me. And I was just crying a lot. And then, yeah, my dad knows how to calm me down. He was kind of like, he's just telling me that there's always going to be tickets basically. <laughs> like, Ooh, because...
0: Exactly, exactly. Which is good advice, because, you yeah. know, it's just, again, it's like, it's sad that obviously, you know, that that situation happened. And you're probably going to remember that forever. That's obviously a story you probably... Um, maybe even tell a lot but yeah I would say the majority obviously of your interactions were were mm-hmm. quite positive I would imagine um, people supporting you in your journey but but yeah that's terrible.
1: The thing is like even now I'm trying to get a visa for Kyrgyzstan uh, for my Silk Road mountain race and the sheer amount of documentation and I'll get this from this person, arrange this, arrange that, um, the number of permissions that I have to take and everything. It's so easy to just feel incredibly unwelcome anywhere um, when there's that amount of hassle involved in actually getting there. You
0: no know, passport privilege is, yeah, it's so real and it's so unfair and there's... I mean, I just hope whatever happens in this world in like 20, 50 years that, you know, borders become less of an issue. And, um, but it really is just so uh, completely unfair. Mm-hmm. And um, so you completed your mission, right? Yeah. In, in what year was it? It was in 2019. It was before COVID it was time. Christmas right? Eve 2018. Wow. Wow. And, you know, after you completed it, did you also, did you take a few months off afterwards? Like, were you kind of in this mode where as soon as you finished, were you like, okay, what's the next adventure? Because I think you always, um, you know, I tend to do a lot of marathons for me. It's like, once I finish one, I need to know what I'm doing the next big race. So I guess what was your mental state? Like, I guess, did you feel pressure to keep doing these crazy adventures and endeavors. Um, yeah. Um, well, when
1: I had 1,000 or 2,000 kilometers left to finish, yeah. I had already signed up for my next event for, like, it filled in the application for Silk Road Mountain Race. Okay. Um, and... Yeah, as it turned out, when I actually ended up at Silk Road, like not much went well over there in 2019, uh, (laughs) pre-COVID. But like, so I had already signed up, so that was always there in my mind. So when I finished and I came back, um, it was also a process because my visa for the UK had been cancelled whilst I was out because I was out of the country for too long. So when that happens, they automatically curtail your visa. So I had to repeat the second term of my second year of university to get another student visa. Um, Came to the UK with it and, yeah, like dropped out from university. And um, that, I don't know how how good of a decision that was but I started my own business and I had to get a whole new visa for that which was a proper hassle and that happened in the middle of pandemic actually um but yeah I had already kind of planned out what I wanted to do like later on but yeah I was really hard to be around for the first few months when I came back because um I felt Instead of feeling a massive sense of achievement, I just felt like an incredible failure because I was meant to do this round the world thing in 100 days, and I was meant to do uh, get the record to be the fastest woman to circumnavigate the world, and I didn't. And I felt like this massive failure uh, for like a long, long, long time before I realized that I'm just being silly. Um, but I
0: can echo that <laughs> it was. I- amazing Mm -hmm.
1: it was a bit of a process to get to a point where i was yeah kinder to myself let's put it that way i say it was the first few months i was just like probably yeah not not in a great place and there was some like trauma undealt with you know like the what happened in spain like if i would see any knife just lying around in the house i would just not be not be very happy about it or like um, yeah, completely yeah and like because I was alone for so long on my bike when I came back and there were like real people it was very hard
0: yes uh, I can absolutely imagine so yeah so your your business you started the Adventure Shed so you essentially help others to put together their own kind of personal crazy physical adventure. Right? Yeah. yeah, that's kind of what it. And so you're you're almost like a consultant in a way, like just based on your own experience of putting together this incredibly complex logistical nightmare. In a sense, you know, of 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 cycling around the world um, yourself. So, do you essentially like? sit down with your clients and try to put together a plan um, and really go step by step on on ways that you can help them
1: yeah so there's a little bit of that but there's also so i i I really like working on the fundraising side of things brand partnerships and sponsorships and like (sighs) fundraising and marketing are like the things that I've really been kind of focusing on when it comes to expeditions, yeah. uh, expeditions along with, um, well, obviously along with logistics of like route and um yeah. what goes where at what time, when do you need it, equipment, yeah. stuff like that, everything. Um, yeah. But because there's so much to it, um, I always kind of look at what the clients need the most from me. Yeah. And yeah. then, uh, I'm currently working on putting together packages to help only with the stuff that I needed to help with because uh, i tried the whole end-to-end expedition management. yeah, And just by myself, doing it for seven expeditions, yeah. uh, which I'm managing right now, it's really hard because there's there's so much to it. Is this an expedition exactly? So, yeah, end to end expedition management. So, the way I, I kind of came up with the idea was that basically, um, from the ideation stage to when someone's done with the expedition and there's PR and media and everything involved, all of it and with yeah. all the logistics in between done by the adventure shed. So, okay. that was like the idea of like doing end to end expedition management. Yes, but yes. um yeah as it turn, turns out like that's and, and if you're just by yourself doing it yeah. you can do like two or three expeditions max but it's every expedition I see as like a four to six person job <laughs> in cool. terms of planning yes. so um yeah like it's really hard because currently I have like seven clients and having that much for seven clients is like so It's it's a lot especially when I'm doing my own expeditions as well, you know, and I also do a lot of freelance writing, like yeah. kit reviews and stuff like that, So, and, and some modelling as well. So, like, there's so much happening already that the whole end-to-end expedition bit, expedition management bit kind of becomes hard, in which case now I've, like, um, I'm working on putting together kind of clumps of services yeah, that are under a certain tag so whether it's fundraising whether it's brand partnerships whether it's marketing media or you know like route planning, risk management like you name it like kind of like making um, kind of I don't know packages for each of those and yeah. charging something for that instead of trying to help with everything of course so so that I know what to focus on when it comes to a certain expedition yeah um, yeah so, much so yeah sense. so that's like more of what I'm working with my current clients at the moment with and um, yeah there's like uh, three polar expeditions that I'm managing at the moment yeah. um, there's a couple of round the world expeditions there's a few like canoe crossings of big rivers and some long distance running stuff. So yeah, there's a lot happening. (laughs) But um, in order to also make it manageable, I have two kind of digital products out there. One is called Adventure Planning Crash Course, where it is an online course to learn how to plan your own expeditions or adventures. And then there's another one called uh, Adventure Planning Blueprint, which is essentially this document which tells you step by step how to plan your own expedition and you can plan it all in there. So it's made on a platform like well, an app called Notion. Okay, okay. And it's like, yeah, literally an all-in-one platform. And so I just kind of made this whole interlinked databases of planning of the okay. planning process and um everything from templates for sponsorship proposal to creating a content plan to, you know, uh, organizing all the media bits involves all the PR, creating right. contact lists and everything that you might need to think about, e- even like equipment, you know, yeah. from yeah. how much it costs to is it actually necessary to how much it weighs to what are you going to put this piece of equipment into, where you can find it and where you can buy it. All of that is For basically content. like yeah. anything that you may need to think about any expedition I've managed to get all of it together in this one document that you can save in your own profile and basically you can save it in your own account and duplicate it as many times as you want to replicate it for your expeditions other expeditions than what you're planning so it's yeah it's called adventure planning blueprint and I have been using it for my clients, and I find I'm finding it like super useful. Wow! Yeah. Uh,
0: no, it sounds. <laughs> I did my own kind of personal expedition uh, a couple of years ago, where I ran a bunch of marathons. Um, yeah, I did
1: read about that.
0: Yes, awesome. and um, I wish I knew about this blueprint, honestly. Uh-huh. Back- because I, I kind of was like you. I really started from zero. I didn't really know anyone who um, had done like a personal journey like I did. Or it's kind of hard even when you do meet those people for them to just like yeah. would tell you everything they know and all their advice. So this would have been really useful. And as you're saying, <laughs> God, what I would kill to have had that. So um, I can imagine it's, yeah, it's a very um, useful resource for so many crazies like us. <laughs> <laughs> um, So I wanted to shift the conversation uh, a bit to talk about, yeah, just your your life growing up in in India, close to Pune, and um, and now obviously spending the last five years in the UK. And um, do you feel a stronger connection to either place at this point? You know, either India or the UK. I mean, I know home is, in quotation marks, is very... um, lucid term so you know at this point what kind of a place does India hold in your heart I guess too and and the same with the UK
1: um
0: it's very
1: complicated
0: because
1: obviously my extended family is still in India but my parents live in Oman okay and I find it very hard to understand what home means to me so it feels like where I come back to after expeditions and adventures and photo shoots or whatever Mm -hmm. is home so that feels like where I live with my partner down like near Bournemouth so that does kind of feel like home but then again like when I'm out on an Open road, riding my bike with everything that I need for a few days on me—that feels like home too. So it's really kind of complicated. But India for me right now—it's—it's—it—it um, it, obviously, yeah, it means it means a lot to me because I grew up there, and it's—it feels more like a second home.
0: Does that make sense? <laughs> Yes, 100%.
1: So it feels like a home away from home rather than home-home. Right. (laughs) So which is very twisted because it should feel like my first home if I was born there and raised there and everything. But I don't think if I went back to the home that I grew up in, um, the house that I grew up in, I don't think if I go there, it'll feel like home. And it's not because my bikes and my stuff aren't there. It's just because it won't feel. I will not feel the same sort of connection, because, right. like, think about it in this way. Like, I, I wasn't. Ugh, most of the time that I got I matured in happened in in the UK, not in India. Right. I right. I grew up there, but as soon as I was officially an adult, I moved here and yeah. all of my kind of life-changing experiences <laughs> yeah. pretty much happen over here. So it's easy to connect kind of that to home more than where I grew up in.
0: Right, right. So right. it's not
1: very complicated, but then I know the minute I go Back, and I'm riding my bike in the Himalayas, it is going to feel like home. But maybe that's something to do with riding
0: my bike than it is to do with the physical place. Of course, of course. And that was sort of my next question. If there's a specific experience, feeling, or emotional memory that you think of that makes India feel home to you, is that sort of riding your bike in the Himalayas or? Being in, you know, your your family uh, home, or something specific like that. Uh, you know what? Yes, there was riding my bike
1: in the Himalayas, but there's also having a cup of chai in my grandparents' uh, their garden and uh, you know with my grandfather doing his gardening stuff and my and my nan kind of sitting there on the steps and just kind of me sitting on the swing that they have in the garden i feel like i do kind of associate that with home at times like just sitting there with a cup of chai and yeah that feels yeah. like home
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely and i ask these two final questions to all my guests what has been the best advice you've ever received in your life?
1: Well, you know what? The one advice that everyone gives to me all the bloody time, but I haven't convinced myself of it yet. Okay. It's probably um, to not give a shit about what other people think. Yeah. Um, and I just, I just, I, I, I kind of tend to be more on the side of being a people pleaser. Than the yeah. other way around until yeah. until I'm confident and strong enough to be like now nah, fuck off. So until yeah. I'm there, it's more. I'm, I tend to be more on the people pleasing side, and I think, um, yeah, I that's not that's not been always the best best thing for me. Yeah. So I think um, that's an that's an advice that I kind of um, tend to um, like. Yeah, keep keep hold of, but yeah, but also something that someone called Abdul Azain upset to me. Uh, this incredible endurance cyclist, um, and he filmed the first little bit, first few days of my round the world journey. And before he was meant to leave, I was like, "Oh, like, can you write something on my on the sticky note?" And I'm gonna stick it on my bike. Yeah, and obviously, he's an endurance rider, he knows what I'm going through, kind of thing. Yeah, so, right. he wrote on my bike, The only way out is through. Oh, and I love that's such a good advice. And I tell that to myself so many times. And yeah. you know, it's applicable in so many different ways and so many different situations. So, yeah, that's yeah. also like uh,
0: a good advice. <laughs> yeah, of course, almost could become a mantra too. You know, the yeah. well. only way out is through. Yeah, through. And, you know, obviously, I'm sure, well, you have become, you know, an inspiration to so many people, women, especially around the world and India as well. But how do you seek to support other women around you and around the world?
1: Through storytelling, actually.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And not through the whole, I'm going to be the ideal, I don't know, I don't want to be someone's idea of um success or you know or be a role model and be a certain way to be a role model Mm -hmm. I feel like as much as I can be myself and tell my stories from my honest honest opinion and have that raw honesty to everything that I talk about I think um if that comes across inspirational, then that's great. I think that's my way of that. But also, um, I'm a part of. Um, I'm, I'm a co-steward of some something called New Forest Off Road Club, okay. um, and it's like um, a women-led space where uh, bikes are led by you know uh, bike bikes are led by bike rides are led by women, off-road bike rides, and it's all about not just kind of um, having a space for women, but having a space that's led by women for everyone to normalise that. Yes. And I think um, my contribution towards that is more on the on the, on the side of confidence building on bikes, through bikes, yeah, uh, with them. And I think uh, that's one way. And... Another one is like um, I'm currently organizing a downhill mountain bike race, okay. um, and wow. the uh, I'm trying to get an equal gender gender participation in there. Yeah, and it's incredibly hard knowing the nature of mountain biking and knowing the nature of downhill mountain biking and everything that it takes to actually like, yeah, get get there. So um, yeah, that's like a challenge, but. I've been speaking with so many organisations and so many kind of um, people about this in, on an individual level um, that I think it is achievable. So I'm optimistic that it is achievable. So um, even though the, these may not be like the most direct waste on like supporting women in yeah. adventure or just women in general.
0: It is, but it is. It is absolutely um No, I mean all of these initiatives are are incredible, and um, yeah, I wish you the best of luck to planning that downhill race because oh my god, <laughs> in itself is such a nightmare, and um, to just get so many yeah. Where people. are you based? I am based in in Paris. Oh wow! Um,
1: okay.
0: Yeah, so originally from the US, but I've been in Paris now for five years almost.
1: Oh, nice.
0: So, yeah, so. um, so, Is that for work
1: or like, did you just move there and really liked it?
0: (laughs) Um, You know, I grew up speaking French um, and after uni, I actually moved to Japan um, very randomly. And then um, I was there for five years and was not ready to move back to the US, but I wanted a change. So I got my master's here in Paris and then decided to stay. and um, yeah it's like good lifestyle good vibe (laughs) uh, so yeah so i'm happy here but um i can i mean to a certain extent relate on like visa issues i've had so many um just mostly like being a resident of different countries but uh but yeah but it's it's always worth in the end and especially when you can persevere through and sort of figure out and and yeah but um thank you so much um, for coming on, I mean, I could literally sit here for the rest of the day and just ask you. There were like so many points during the, during this interview. I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't ask about like what she was eating during this crazy journey. <laughs> like, there were questions. So, but um, but I I hope I feel like also even though your expedition to me is infinitely crazier than what I did, um, I feel like our types of crazies do um connect at some point. Um,
1: yeah, definitely.
0: And, uh, the world. So I, I hope I get to meet you in person. Um, yeah, that would
1: be awesome. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but I appreciate your time and uh and thanks again for coming on. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. That's the show for today. As always, I am so appreciative of your time listening to these incredible stories. It would mean the absolute world to me if you shared this podcast with friends or left a review on Apple Podcasts. This will only mean that these stories will be amplified even louder to the rest of the world. This episode was co-produced and edited by Kate Tapscott. Stay tuned for the release of next week's episode featuring Somaliland's most celebrated female public figures or what many refer to her as the Muslim Mother Teresa from her view.